Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, the podcast that brings you practical advice, lessons, and stories from senior leaders and thought leaders from around the world. The Strategy and Leadership Podcast is brought to you by SME Strategy, working with organizations around the world to create and implement their strategic plans. To learn more, visit smestrategy.net. And now, your host, Anthony Taylor. Welcome, folks, to today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Rohini Anand, who is a strategic DEI advisor and the author of Leading Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Rohini, how are you today? Very well. Just uh, happy to be with you today and looking forward to our conversation. Me too. And I didn't know, we found out at the, we have a, a BC connection that in your time you studied at UBC and UVic, and I thought that was super, super That's cool. Right. Awesome. And I love that part of the country. So uh, you're lucky to be there. Excellent. I feel very lucky, but come come on back anytime. And that applies to all of our listeners. So be sure to give me a shout. Also, in addition to the DEI work that you've done, uh, you know, an ex- extensive career at Sedexo, leading organizational change there. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and your body of work, and then we'll get into our conversation for today. Sure. Thank you so much. I've been leading diversity, equity, and inclusion transformation globally and did this work um, at Sodexo for several years. And when I rewired from Sodexo in 2020, I decided to sort of hunker down. COVID hit and I decided to hunker down and, and write my lived experiences in a book. And my desire was sort of, you know, more of an act of closure, uh, an act of sharing the lessons that I had learned so others would not sort of have the same missteps. And what I found in doing this work was that uh, when I talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion, global diversity drew the most interest and definitely the most frustration. And it was more about how do we do this? How we how do we localize our transformation efforts while pushing for change? So that was my opportunity to really, you know, sort of give back some of the lessons that I had learned was sort of an act of closure, as I said. And what I found was that um, progress has been painfully slow. And while CEOs have made all of these performative statements and they've hired diversity professionals, et cetera, more needs to be done. And, uh, you know, there's an opportunity now, you know, with the murder of George Floyd going global, going viral, that we can really take this work from sort of situational actions to more sustainable progress, especially globally. So this book that I wrote is a practical global book. It is not an academic book. It's not theoretical. It's a view from the trenches of someone who sort of had to pioneer a way forward without any real map. But this work is very, very personal to me. You know, I think with anyone that's involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion work, it's very personal for them. And it's very integral to who I am. I actually grew up in Mumbai, India. And as I told you, I sort of came to North America as a young single woman. But I grew up in India and, you know, sort of in a, in a society where everyone pretty much looked like me. I was part of the majority religion. And surrounded by others like me, I had the privilege of not really having to think about my identity. And it was really my move to North America, which was an inflection point in my journey, both literally and metaphorically. And my identity shifted from being a person who saw herself at the center of, the, of her world to being a minority, to being an immigrant, to being a foreigner. And I was honestly totally unprepared for that. So it was only when I was identified as a minority that I realized the privileges that come with being part of a majority. 
And I was part of the majority growing up in India, but I didn't recognize my privilege in that way. And honestly, I was unable to till I was perceived as a minority and I experienced things differently. So, you know, this is vocation is very personal. And, you know, understanding what it means to be an outsider, to be a minority is really at the heart of diversity, equity and inclusion work. So I, I'd like to say that my vocation and my avocation are perfectly aligned. So that's a little bit about who I am. I'm now, as you said earlier, before we joined this conversation, I'm on several boards, both for profit, not for profit, and do a fair amount of strategic coaching as well as talk about my book. So that's me. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm really interested, of course, you know, the, the framework within the book I'm ex- interested in uh, experiencing and, and discussing. And I found the, the two words that kind of stuck out, the idea of multiculturalism, the, the idea of, of the global, because we have listeners around the world, you know, South Africa, uh, Africa, Singapore, you know, Asia, every, like everywhere. And so DEI looks different than the North American lens. And I thought it was just so interesting saying, hey, going from the majority to the minority. And what thought in my head is I have what I consider the majority for my North American lens, whereas somebody in South Africa will have their own minority majority kind of conversation. And then I'm just going to tie in another kind of shared experience going through resumes as we were hiring my colleague and I were like trying to be aware of our biases and to say, well, there's the culture, there's the fit and there's the biases. And so I imagine people go through that somewhat on a day-to-day basis, but maybe one question at a time, how does a global lens on DEI apply to companies and how is it different in the various countries that you've worked in? Maybe we can start from there and dig deep. Yeah, right. So there's different ways of approaching this work, you know, so you can sort of take a very local approach. And one of the examples that I have is from Ahol Delhaize, which is a grocery chain, very large in Europe. And they have a very, very local approach where they hire from a five mile radius. You know, the shops cater to the customers, sort of immediate customers in that five mile radius, etc. And while this is very attractive because it's very locally relevant, it misses a certain, uh, some of the things. One is there's no sort of cohesive brand. There's no roll-up in terms of, you know, a roll-up view. And it's not informed by external best practices or an external view or benchmarking externally. So the other approach is sort of universal, right? When you're doing this work, you can take a very universal approach, which is very top-down. And in that instance, there's, there's a particular a North American food delivery company where with the best of intentions, they had a a rainbow badge during Gay Pride Month that they actually distributed around the world. Very good intentions. It was to signal that this is an inclusive organization, but their employees in Egypt balked because it was not safe to be out gay in Egypt. Now, you know, so taking a top-down standard universal approach can be easy, swift, cheaper, but it doesn't necessarily take traction locally. So the approach that I suggest is a transversal approach where you have a global framework, you have you know, sort of a, a coherent brand, some metrics, a vision, but you allow for local implementation. And the local implementation basically you know, takes into consideration the local laws. It's anchored in an understanding of the local context. It's rooted in and informed by the history, the culture, the language, and the laws. 
And, um, you know, you have to really understand the dominant, the power structures, right? The dominant subordinate groups in different parts of the world. In some parts, it's based on race. In others, it's based on religion or ethnicity or caste. And it doesn't mean sort of accepting the status quo. It doesn't mean, you know, accepting inequities. But what you have to do is, you know, it allows sort of outsiders to be catalysts for change because sometimes those within a culture are not able to raise the issues because of power dynamics or they may not see the issues. But it works best if local change agents are empowered to find the right entry points and to ensure relevance. So, you know, taking a universal view, right, global is what, you know, sort of the cliche is very often, but a transversal approach where you have a, a global kind of view, but allow for local implementation in partnership with local change agents while pushing for change, I think is, is sort of the best approach, if you will. And that's actually the first principle in my book is make it local, Anthony, so the first principle is, you know, I have these five principles that anchor the transformation work, and the first principle is make it local. Perfect. Well, I'll, uh, not having read the book yet, I'm wondering if I could try to pick up on all five. But I really like that that tra- transversal. There's, you know, pros and cons to the one size fits all versus the the hyper local. So I guess my question is, as it relates to that universal structure and local implementation, um, who is responsible? How do you uh, identify those champions? How do you solicit the local needs? And then also, how do you bridge the communication between the local kind of region, so to speak, and then the overall company as a whole, such that that awareness and understanding, and I don't want to say empathy, but as you, you can't put yourself into somebody's shoes if you don't know what they're dealing with and you can't address the problem if you don't have that understanding. So how do you make that bridge so that the company as a whole can improve its overall diversity, inclusion, and integration? Sure. So let me share, I think the best way to share this is through two stories, okay? You had two different questions, right? So the first one is, you know, how do you identify those local sort of change agents, right? How do you, that was the first question, I believe, correct? So on that, you know, there's one story where that I actually have in the book where I talk this, you know, my book, Leading Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, where I talk about Saudi Arabia. And one of the leaders in Saudi Arabia, he was actually French. He was, you know, leading the business in Saudi Arabia. And when he got there, you know, the the position of women, obviously, as you know, uh, they were under a fair amount, they had to have male chaperones to do a lot of things and didn't get the right to drive till much later, etc. When he reached there, he saw that the things were opening up and the government was allowing women to work in multinational corporations. So he hired a lot of women, but he had to have them in a separate room. They had to be spoken through uh, an intercom. And if you had to enter the room and had to be with a, a Muslim male Saudi chaperone to enter that particular room. Now, the women realized that in order to advance their careers, and he realized, I mean, this was sort of not really aligned with the company's value systems in terms of, you know, the the position of women. But he realized that in order for them to advance their careers, they would have to interact with, you know, their male colleagues. So he put this, he put this to the organization and, you know, the 
the more conservative men said, no, there's no way they can. It's not unless they have a chaperone and a Muslim chaperone with them. So he said, fine. And this is where this sort of identifying local champions and change agents, even sometimes the biggest resistors comes in. He said, fine. You know, if you can accompany them to every single meeting, that's fine. But they do need to meet with other colleagues and they want to. The women themselves wanted to, you know, advance their careers. So he said, you know, you can either do that, you know, or you find a solution. So what they did was they actually found a solution, which is a very simple solution. But they said that the women could meet with their male colleagues in an office if the door was open and if they were sitting at opposite ends of the table. So, you know, it worked. They were able to do the business that they needed to do. They were able to have meetings in order to, you know, expand their learning and their exposure. So when you talk about local change agents, it really depends on the power dynamics. And sometimes it is, you know, I don't think I have sort of one set answer for that, but sometimes it's the resistors. I think the other very quick example that I have is, you know, in Singapore, Barclays Bank, Google, and other companies sponsored. Now, Singapore is not a gay-friendly country. They sponsored the Pink Dot Festival. And in 2017, I believe, the Singaporean government clamped down and said that multinationals are not allowed to sponsor this Pink Dot Festival. But by that time, through their influence, they had over 100 local companies that had, uh, you know, joined this movement and were, you know, off and running sponsoring the Pink Dot Festival. So they had sort of sparked this change in a culture, in a context which was, you know, not LGBTQ plus friendly. So they had identified those local change agents or local companies that were willing to take this charge and run with it. So by the time the Singaporean government said no, you know, they it was it had already taken traction and the local companies were sponsoring it. So those are two examples of, you know, how you can sort of work with locals, you know, understanding the power dynamics to really sort of spark some change and disrupt the status quo. And your second question was... <laughs> oh, I, I, I forgot my second question a long time ago. I'm just so it captivated by those stories because it shows... It highlights there needs to be a willingness. And when you, when we kind of opened our conversation about, you know, it has taken much longer than it should have, those that are on the kind of pro side of it, it what I heard through both those stories is, is the traditions, like it or not, the systems and really the power dynamics that exist within not even just companies or organizations, but within governments and kind of civilization cities regions that even in North America, but in other countries too, create resistance to being able to move those changes forward. And so, I mean, systems change. What do, what do we need to do to be able to move that forward other than majority of people who want to move it? So maybe this might be time for your step framework. Yeah. No, I think this is a time for that framework. So I think really, you know, uh, it's a good segue. But, you know, I think very often sort of diversity efforts are seen as linear activities, right, that are dispensable, a series of checklist of things. And there really is nothing like that, particularly when you're doing global work, which is very complex. And because of the dynamic nature, there's really no quick checklist. There's no playbook. There's no best practices that are enough. There, you know, in my mind, there are these five key elements, and I'll get to them in a minute, but each one of them is, I've expressed them as, as the principles. The first one is make it local, right? And these five principles are, they're simple statements, but they're very disruptive. 
And you know, they sort of don't provide plug and play templates based on what works in, what's worked in one part of the world. And that's actually been the foundational mistake is to replicate what's worked in one part of the world in other parts of the world. So these principles can be applied with sensitivity to any culture, but it allows, it empowers leaders to develop their own solutions organically rather than to mimic, you know, any one country's solution. So the first one, as I have already shared, is make it local. This, you know, understanding the local context, but pushing for change. The second is what I call leaders change to lead change. And we all know that a commitment by senior leaders is absolutely fundamental to ensuring that diversity, equity, and inclusion is sustained. But when leaders embrace this work with sort of authentic purpose and passion, they go from what I call performative actions to sustainable progress. And in order to do that, they really need to internalize the benefit of DEI to themselves in the organization. And often this requires a disruption of their worldview. And it takes this painful work of introspection. So I have a lot of stories in there about you know, leaders who have changed their worldview. And very often it's not data, but it's really sort of stories and being in, in sort of situations where they are the minority. So, you know, and I think that when leaders combine this sort of inclusive mindset and behaviors with concrete action, they, re, you know, become inclusive leaders and they've got to be intentional about leading DEI as they would with any other business initiative. So it has to have metrics, it has to have accountability, et cetera, just like anything else. The third principle is, and it's good business too. And it's pretty clear that without a compelling change rationale, 70% of change efforts will fail. So diversity, equity, and inclusion cannot be siloed. It has to really be congruent with the organization's purpose and how business is done. And, you know, there's got to be a clear change rationale. The fourth principle is go deep, wide, and inside out. And, you know, organizations are comprised of these interconnected systems that work in concert with each other. And diversity, equity, and inclusion needs to be infused into the processes, the policies, and the structure. So you really have to take a systems approach, you know, embedding DI wide through scaling governance frameworks, deep through seeding the organization with local allies and champions, and what I call inside out which is integrating it in all the systems internally and into the external systems. And then the last is know what matters and count it because, you know, metrics provide the sort of global uh, framework. They spotlight problem areas and possible solutions. And honestly, they are, you know, sort of instruments of change, but they've got to be aligned with the local context and you've got to hold your teams accountable. So what I say is that ultimately, Change happens at the intersection of people and processes, and it's sort of ongoing. Transformation happens at the intersection of people and processes, and it's ongoing. So you've got to impact both the people and the processes through these five principles that I outlined. The local, the leadership, the systems, the accountability, and having a change rationale narrative. So those are the four. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And I, I look forward to I really love the, the story approach versus the, you know, the process approach, although you need the, the heart and the head at the same time. I heard the, the disruptive, like you have to disrupt what you're doing, you have to change. So just kind of a personal question here. As I lead strategic planning sessions and I go through, you know, fairly standard strategic planning framework, that's really good. And we look at vision and, and mission and, and values and strategic priorities and goals and actions. And usually like they're organizational and rarely does 
diversity, equity, inclusion come up as a strategic priority in my like decade of practice. And so I wonder as a, call myself an ally, but as somebody who believes in it, at what level can somebody like me bring that thinking in? Because it is, it has to touch on everything. So it can't be an activity. It has to be a process. I I see it as a lens, like you have to have your lens on and every decision you make goes through that lens. But how can somebody as an external provider like me go in and say, hey, have you considered this or are you making this decision considering your local perspective and all of the steps that you've taken? Is my question kind of clear? Yeah, no, your question is very clear. I think the issue becomes, you know, depending on what angle you're taking the strategic planning session, right? So ultimately, you've got to approach diversity as an enabler of business success, okay? Whether it is talent and getting the best talent, whether it is innovation, uh, you know, and creativity, whether it's creating that inclusive, engaged environment so people can deliver their best and be most productive, whether it is, you know, meeting customer or client needs. So it's all of those pieces, whatever the priority of the business is. Let me just share with you the Sodexo example, right? So I worked at Sodexo and um, Sodexo is a very large food and facilities management company. And in North America alone, when I was there, we were in like 14 or 15,000 locations, over 40, 50,000 locations globally. When I started doing this DI transformation work, it was very intimidating because I just wondered how are we going to bring about change in mindsets and behaviors when people are so geographically dispersed. Headquarters, we had maybe three to 500 people. All the other 460,000 people are in client locations. Okay, so it really is What I realized was, as I started doing this work and we started cascading it, our managers office out of client locations. So, you know, it may be UVIC or UBC could be a client, okay? They would start sharing some of this with their clients and the clients noticed, you know, there's all these materials, their resources, they're doing all this stuff. And they started asking the managers for sort of support can you have somebody come in and speak to us about what you're doing? Now, food service is not necessarily a C-suite issue, but diversity, equity, and inclusion is. So what started to happen was that my team and I would actually go in and do presentations to C-suites to a point where the managers, mostly white male managers, mid-level managers at the time, were sort of on the fringes of this, not quite sure how it was going to help them. But now all of a sudden you have these managers saying, look, I can see the diversity is going to benefit my business because it gives me a whole other level of relationships with my clients. It gives me access to senior managers. You know, it can become a vehicle to open up business opportunities for me with clients. So they would actually ask my team and I to come in if they couldn't get access to a university client or to a you know executive in a large company they'd say do you have can you provide us access through diversity to this particular client system and and we actually touched over a billion dollars of business a year through new sales client retention you know uh, all of that so that lens you know so i don't think that people would have thought of diversity as being a lens for expanding the food service business, right? No, it's cost, it's, but bringing that lens to it opened the aperture and gave another sort of differentiator and competitive advantage to a business that's very commoditized. So I would say, you know, 
understand the business, understand what the pain points are, what you're trying to achieve, and then figure out how diversity can be an enabler to help you to get there. And nine times out of 10, you know, I think there's going to be an opportunity. Does that help answer your question? Yes, I think it comes to um, driving the conversations. So I think of things as tools, as most most things are. And so I was like, okay, if it is a tool, because we're saying, hey, we have an outcome. Outcome is more money growing business. So let's look at diversity inclusion as a tool. And I hate to say it from like a, like the selfish perspective, but people are drive, driven by their self-interest despite we want them to be altruistic and good. But there, I have said it before, I will say it again. There is a business case for diversity, equity, inclusion. As you were talking, and I don't know if this exists yet, but uh, are you familiar with the balance score, scorecard? I'm sure you are. Yeah, okay. Why not add diversity inclusion to the balance scorecard to have a fifth measure of how you're doing so that it actually looks at organizational health or in the value proposition canvas say, hey, diversity inclusion from an organizational perspective, from a business model, I believe should include that because then people will start seeing the connection point. Maybe the natural inclination, if you haven't been the minority at any point of your life, the connection point between the two is is lacking. At least it is for me. And I've been trying to study this for the past two years. Yeah, no, you're right about that. And actually, we did that. We actually included it in the scorecard. We actually had it as a strategic imperative. So people were forced to think about it and report on it. And to be honest, really, you know, it's not just about the business case, because it is about doing well while doing good, right? About being a purpose-driven organization. And by doing this, you're also advancing social justice. So it's both and. But, you know, to your point, if I could just make a quick comment about, you know, not having had that experience, say, of being a minority. I mean, I think there are, there are ways of, of, you know, and I, I believe that leaders have this ecosystem of beliefs and you really have to meet leaders where they are and then incrementally nudge them along. And I remember one particular CEO that I worked with, you know, we were focused globally on gender. And he said to me, he said, you know, why are you talking about race? Because it doesn't translate globally. And, uh, you know, it's sort of diluting the focus on gender. And I realized, and he was right, it does not, race does not translate in the same way outside of the United States. There are other dimensions of difference that sometimes take priority. And race is entangled with other elements of identity, like ethnicity and caste and religion, et cetera. So he was completely right. But I realized that I had to expand his view on race, particularly in North America, you know, within the potent context of the history of this country, um, you know, enslavement, et cetera. So I invited him to an African-American employee resource group meeting in North America. He was one of the only Frenchmen in that room. He was one of the only white men in that room. And he listened to the lived experiences of the black men. And he also experienced being a minority for those two days. And to his credit, he stayed for those entire two days. It was transformational for him. And he came away basically saying, and after the murder of George Floyd, he sent this very heartfelt message to the organization, which he may not have done had he not have attended that particular meeting. But it was transformational enough that, you know, it became a factor in his conversations when he did succession planning discussions, et cetera. So I think there are, 
you know, opportunities and ways of, of sort of giving leaders these experiences. Uh, the other one that I'll share really quickly is one particular, you know, executive in Europe, uh, he mentored a woman who uh, managed a very high security facility. And after mentoring her for a year, he came to me and he said that if you had presented me with two candidates, a male and a female, and asked me to select the best qualified for a high security facility, I would have chosen the man because it's dangerous. You need an assertive, aggressive style. It's not safe for a woman. But he said after mentoring her, she has a low-key collaborative style and she's extremely effective. I will never let my unconscious bias come into play in making these hiring decisions. So I think it's sort of meeting people where they are, giving them experiences to shift their worldview so that they have experiences. Very often it is lived experiences that are shared. And I think leaders have to be sort of judicious in how they ask people to share those lived experiences because it takes a toll. It's like coming out every single time and that's exhausting. So they have to be careful and really maximize those opportunities. So I know I rambled a bit, but I wanted no, to get to these stories. Uh, uh, honestly, it's been such a, a wonderful conversation. And and, to the, and I wrote it myself, like you say, it's, it's all the challenging, the biases. And, and on one hand, there's the disruption. And then the other, the, 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 the shifting, the understanding, there is like the tone of, of empathy, uh, like re-education, but putting people in a, in a situation that they might not have been in. For most people, it, it is scary and it's not supposed to be scary but you're supposed to you know there's a there's a benefit to it as a as a human being to just get it at a new level and i think working with a global company you know you get you could get put into different opportunities where you meet different people that's why i personally value travel so much because you are in a different context and, and it, you're not you know you're not right in that you know your way is not the right way and so you know when you're in rome but that just the, the shift of that. And so I, I I hope that our listeners are inspired to take actions with their teams to look at uh, diversity, equity and inclusion beyond just the words, like what it means in practice uh, and live it in whatever way and, and to challenge uh, their own biases or assumptions or, or lived experience. Maybe you're not right about things. That's hard to believe sometimes too. But uh, Dr. Anand, I can't uh, say how grateful I am to have been able to chat with you today. Can you let our listeners know where they can you know, learn more about your work and connect with you and, and potentially if they have a board that you can contribute to? Really just thank you so much for your time today and your experience. It's been invaluable to me personally. So thank you. Thank you. This has been a great conversation and you can go on my website, www.rohiniyanand.com and my book, Leading Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion is available on Barnes and Barnes and Nobles, Amazon and all the other book, book outlets. So hope you'll read it. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. And I will pick it up. And, and one of the things that I really appreciate about how you have shared today, um, especially for in, in a can be challenging subject is is the world of stories like I teach you a framework it's not going to teach you a framework it's really understanding how a person lived it and you can see yourself in that uh experience so thank you for doing that to me today and uh dr Anand, thank you for being on the show today it's been really a pleasure Folks, thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for listening. I'd love to hear your comments and feedback, what you took away from today. Uh, be sure to send us a note. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. I want to thank you again, Dr. Anand, for joining us today. Uh, my name is Anthony Taylor, and I appreciate you for being here. So I'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We post twice a week, so you can count on us for your weekly source of content to help you grow and expand as a leader. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider giving us a review. We read every single one, and it helps us make a better show for you, the listener. Also, it helps more people find the show, which means we can help as many people as possible. We appreciate you listening and following along, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. And as Anthony says, until next time.